Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 19, Books and Betrayal. The American Library in Paris stayed closed during the summer of 1940, before, during, and after Germany's occupation of the city. But when Clara de Chambrat, one of its board members, crossed the Seine to the right bank and visited the institution, she found its director, Miss Dorothy Reeder, at her desk, working diligently. The brown paper had been removed from the windows, placed there earlier that year, in case of German bombing. The two flags, one from the U.S., the other of France, still flew outside its front door. Miss Reeder had taken charge of the building and its 100,000 books, while the other staff members, either of Jewish descent or French citizens, went into hiding. As there was little to do with the library being closed, Miss Reeder spent her summer working for the American Embassy, specifically at the Hotel Bristol since mid-June, either checking guests' U.S. passports upon entry or roving around the city, hanging up the all-important U.S. seal on U.S. and British property when possible. But for the remainder of her life, Reeder claimed that she never saw any of the supposed Jews enter or leave that Anne Morgan was known to be hiding in the building. Her silence is telling. Miss Reader's other free time was spent bringing books from the library to the hotel for the bored Americans or the boarded-up refugees during the long hours of curfew. That summer, everyone had to be off the streets by 9 p.m. After the armistice of June 22nd, life began to slowly return to normal, although it would never quite reach that level. The library staff that came back met patrons at the door to give or take back books and to wrap up other books that were being sent to the American Red Cross, the YMCA, or to British prisoners held in German camps. And the library staff got a glimpse into the psychological warfare between the remaining antagonists. The British prisoners were allowed to request French literature. However, the Americans were not allowed to fulfill those requests. The masters of Central Europe had decreed only French books for French readers, English books for English readers. One morning, early on in the occupation, Miss Reeder was visited by the German Bibliothekschutz, or library protector, his manner imperious, his uniform immaculate, his bearing Prussian. He proclaimed that it was his responsibility to make sure that only suitable material was allowed in libraries in Holland, Belgium, and French-occupied territory. But after getting over her initial fear, Miss Reeder recognized the man as Dr. Hermann Fuchs, the director of the Berlin Library. In fact, they had met before and had gained a respect for each other's work. She mentioned knowing him, and some of his sternness left him, and a small smile even found its way to his face. He complimented her on the American Library in Paris, saying there was no other collection of books in Europe to compare to it. He then went on to say that he was here to let her know that her place could reopen under two conditions. One, the American library had to abide by the same rules that ran the French National Library, namely that certain persons, Jews, were not allowed to enter. Secondly, 
that any books she possessed that was on the Bernhardt list had to be put away. This list already controlled which books could be lent in Germany and its occupied territories. Then, hesitantly, Miss Reeder asked if the proscribed books had to be burned. Dr. Fuchs reared back in shock, saying, quote, No, my dear young lady, what a question between professional librarians. People like us do not destroy books. I said they must not circulate, unquote. But it was not as bad as Reeder thought it would be. Of her 100,000 books, about 40 had to be removed from the shelves and placed in her office. Not long after, Miss Reeder shared her conversation with the German library protector, with Clara Chambra. Her response was simply to take the desired books to those people who were no longer allowed to use the library. The solution was simple, effective, but short-lived. On September 18th, the American Library reopened. The governing body over the library, the New York Board of Directors, congratulated Miss Reeder, her boss, Dr. Grow, and Countess Chambra for hanging in there during these hard times. Miss Reeder replied that their staff of four would do everything they could during the hours they were allowed to be open, which was between 2 and 5 p.m. every day. Before or after those hours, they would tend to the British and French POWs and those persons who were forced to stay away from the library. But it was not all relatively good news. That same month, September, the Germans started rationing food to about 1,300 calories a day, roughly about half of what a grown person needs to live. And the news only got worse for the library and for the American hospital. Dr. Edmund Grow, who directed the library and the hospital, besides operating next to Dr. Sumner Jackson, was now 70 years old, and the strain was telling on him. It was time for him to head home. So, in September, he left for the States. This left the library to Miss Reader and the hospital to Dr. Sumner Jackson. Miss Reader was helped by Clara Chambra, and Dr. Jackson was assisted by General Alderbert, De Chambre. French-born but naturalized U.S. citizen Charles Badeau, who would play an important role for those involved in the story of occupied France, was a complex man of extremes. He was born poor, left school at an early age, and had several jobs just on this side of the law. He would eventually make his way to the U.S., becoming a citizen in 1908, and then stumble upon a system called the Taylor system, that treated humans and their productivity like machines and broke down their output into units to be measured, judged, and increased through incentives. But then the Great War started, and Charles Badeau joined the French Foreign Legion in 1914. But due to an accident, his foot was severely broken. He was released before seeing combat. Back in the U.S., he took up his Badeau system an updated version of the Taylor system, and brought it to the attention of big businesses, who, at the time, were doing all that they could to get rid of non-essentials and obsessed with results-based business practices. It wasn't long before companies like Gillette, Eastman Kodak, Goodrich, and DuPont were applying the Badeau system to their great satisfaction and to their bottom line. Productivity was up, and the number of workers was down. As can be imagined, workers and unions hated the system 
just as much as their superiors loved it. One organized body dedicated to fighting such schemes called the system, quote, the most completely exhausting inhuman efficiency system ever invented, unquote. Charlie Chaplin himself mocked the system and its effects on the workers in his film, Modern Times. The inventor was based on Badeau as he force-fed his workers while on the assembly line to do away with something as frivolous as lunchtime. Charles Badeau was a millionaire practically overnight and married the daughter of a rich industrialist, Fern Lombard, in 1917. They never had children, and their lives together was one successive adventure after another. They had long-standing suites at the Plaza Hotel and the Ritz, and had an enormous apartment on Fifth Avenue. Badeau, obsessed with efficiency, also had an apartment in Greenwich Village for his long line of mistresses. With his business running smoothly, he had offices in every major U.S. city, and then in Europe. The Badeaus traveled the world. Politics never entered Charles' head, only money and power and adventure. They crossed the African continent, east to west, in a car, and then again, this time, south to north, from the Cape to Cairo. Then they sailed a schooner over the South Pacific. Next, they drove a car from British Columbia to Alaska. Badeau's business continued to expand internationally, due as much to business owners' greed as the results his system produced. By 1936, Badeau's company was advising 500 companies in the U.S., 225 in Great Britain, 144 in France, 49 in Italy, and 39 in Germany. But this last country would cause Badeau no end of headaches. In 1934, one year after Hitler came to power, Badeau's offices in Germany were confiscated. But with his usual efficiency, Badeau began charming Nazi power players, even sponsoring busts made of Hitler and Goering. But the Nazis were still not forthcoming with his possessions in Germany. Then Badeau became involved, probably naively, in a storm of international politics. One of Badeau's wife's friends, Catherine Rogers, was allowing her villa near Caen to be used by Mrs. Wallace Warfield Simpson, while she waited for her divorce from the British shipping heir, Ernest Simpson, to be finalized. The Duke of Windsor, formerly King Edward VIII, he had abdicated in December 1936, was waiting in Austria. But in early 1937, Fern's friend asked her to allow Mrs. Simpson to stay at her place, Chateau de Condes, a magnificent structure with 1,200 hectares, so she could wait out her time in privacy. Fern and Charles agreed, and the waiting bride moved in in early March 1937. The Duke of Windsor quietly joined the party at the Chateau in April, when the divorce was completed. Their marriage on June 3, 1937, was attended by the Badeaus and a few witnesses, including Churchill's son, Randolph. Afterward, the Duke and Badeau became friends. During one of their long talks, the Duke asked Badeau if he could arrange a tour for the Prince of Germany. He wanted to see the factories using the Badeau system. Charles, always looking for a way to ingratiate himself to those in Berlin, in hopes of getting his offices back, agreed. The almost royal tour began in Berlin on October 11, 1937, 
It went on for two weeks. Photos of the Duke next to Hitler, Goering, and Joseph Goebbels was seen as a Nazi propaganda triumph. Badeau then set up a similar tour for the Duke in the U.S. He asked the leader of IBM, Thomas Watson, to fund the Duke's trip and was told yes. Watson had spent a part of the previous year in Nazi Germany, meeting Hitler, arranging certain business contracts with Nazi leaders, and ended his time there by attending a Nazi rally. But the U.S. tour did not go off. Many citizens of Allied countries and the U.S. were upset with the Duke, but their anger was mostly directed at Badeau when he tried to arrange the details. Although Badeau lost respect with many in the business community, his antics seemed to have paid off when Nazi Germany returned his businesses to him. But only six months later, they were taken back again. Badeau was not compensated this second time, either. Having been so treated by the Germans, Badeau worked hard to charm and reassert himself with the French and the Americans. In this, he was mostly successful. The U.S. leased the Chateau de Caen, and many of their diplomats and support staff went there when the Germans entered Paris. They were joined by many other Americans of all social ranks, as well as others who were simply trying to stay ahead of the German war machine. Charles and Fern Badeau treated them all with courtesy and champagne. But all that was halted abruptly at the end of June 1940, when the Germans requisitioned the chateau for themselves. The Badeaus, taking this in stride, treated their new guests with equal flair. But this was only the beginning of German heavy-handedness. The conquerors also grabbed up any heavy machinery and petrol they could find. This left Badeau and a knowledgeable employee to take wood from the Loire Valley and turn it into charcoals for gasogen to power cars and any remaining machinery. Badeau was, if anything, a survivor. Falling back on his one true talent, Badeau managed to meet Heinrich Otto Abbots, Germany's unofficial ambassador to Vichy, France. Technically, the two former combatants had no diplomatic relationship. That is, until a completed peace treaty could be signed. Abbots was willing, though unable, to help Badeau with any of his myriad problems. But the Frenchman never gave up. He continued to charm and bedazzle the right Nazis with weekend parties and underwriting their trips to music halls, theaters, and expensive restaurants. Starvation was for others, not for the victors and those certain French citizens who had put aside their pride and accepted this new reality. At the same time, it must be said, Badeau worked equally hard to protect those Jews of his acquaintance from their Nazi persecutors. Having hit another wall, Badeau then befriended Dr. Franz Medicus, the assistant director of the Department of Administrative Economy, who had the rank of general and was responsible for the property taken from French Jews in Paris. Medicus was soon charmed by the diminutive Frenchman, and to show his gratitude for the many weekends at the Chateau, which were non-stop parties, that went on until late Sunday night, the German official obtained for Charles Badeau ration tickets for petrol, as well as the all-important WH license plate, which supposedly only Germans could have. This was above the standard SP, or service publique, plates used by French physicians, 
beautiful women currently in favor with the Germans, and, of course, German allies. Medicus might have had a hand in writing the Nuremberg Laws of 1935, stripping German Jews of their rights, but he knew how to repay a gentleman for his kindness, even a French one. Badeau, again, showing that complexity of his nature, kept Robert Murphy, the ranking U.S. diplomat, apprised of all of his doings with the Germans. Finally, with having spread so much good cheer around to every German in a uniform, Badeau's dream, well, his smaller dream, came true. The German high command gave him back his Chateau de Caen. The American embassy staff moved back in, but the Germans and certain open-minded French citizens showed up on the weekends, and they were all entertained by Charles and Fern in lavish style. The war and occupation could wait until Monday. Dr. Sumner Jackson, now with more authority over the hospital than ever, of course, that meant being in the front line of battling the Germans for any and all kinds of supplies, had his wife and son move back into their apartment on the Avenue Foch in the city. This way, he could keep an eye on them, but also, as the apartment was now not empty, it would be harder for some German officers to simply move in. Sumner had asked his wife's sister, Alice, to stay at the lake house. Again, with someone there, it was another, although small, barrier for the Germans. On July 6, 1940, two French POWs were brought to the hospital at Neuilly from another hospital, Hospital Foch. It had just been requisitioned by the Germans for their wounded. One of the new patients was soldier André Guillaume. He was introduced to Jackson and some of the nurses. At first, their casual manner of treating him somewhat offended the patient, as he had heard so many good things about these Americans trying to help all wounded soldiers. Then it dawned on him that they weren't being standoffish, but neutral. Still, his feelings were hurt a bit, but he supposed everyone was doing what they had to do in order to survive. It wouldn't be long before Guillaume realized just how wrong he had been. As Guillaume's wounds would take months to heal, he saw firsthand how the Americans were being anything but neutral. French POWs would come in, near death, all hope lost, only to have them disappear a few days later, with Dr. Jackson writing up a death certificate. Of course, there was hardly ever a body to attach to it. Later, the nurses would whisper to each other about a formerly dead patient turning up in London, apparently alive and well. This happened over and over during Guillaume's time at the hospital. Before too long, a German doctor was allowed to observe various parts of the patient's treatment. The Americans ignored him as best they could and went on with their neutral ways. The American hospital went on as best it could with lessening supplies and increasing restrictions. Aldebert de Chambra, Dr. Jackson, and Elizabeth Comte ran the facility, making ad hoc decisions whenever the latest crisis or shortage arose. The American Red Cross asked them to provide 200 more beds for French and British POWs seriously wounded. The staff did and moved on. Surrounding areas asked to borrow more than half of their ambulances to help more isolated patients. The request was granted. But honestly, it wasn't a hardship for the hospital, 
with hardly any fuel of whatever kind to use. The vehicles were just sitting there anyway. The four or so ambulances that remained behind were used to bring food from distant farms to Paris. Still, it was never enough, and this coupled with the lack of gas for cooking made everyone's life that much harder. At the hospital, the chef had to boil vegetables in large pots over a fire in the courtyard. But with fewer vehicles to worry about, part of the garage was converted into a pigsty. Literally. This was against occupation rules, as was hunting for game. But the staff raised the pigs in secret and then slaughtered them for a feast for all. No point in letting them hang around, only to have the Germans confiscate them. And that was the attitude of many in the hospital. On October 11th, General of the Army Charles Hunziger, the man who signed the armistice for France, awarded the American hospital with the Order of Merit and the Croix de Guerre for services to the wounded during the Battle of France. Who knows what the Americans thought of this, but at least they and their patients got champagne for a toast. On October 21st, Clara and Aldebert de Chabras had lunch with Pierre Laval in Paris. The Chabras' son, René, was in the U.S. trying to gather aid for the children of the Free Zone. But Laval couldn't be bothered with that right now. He had just had foreign minister added to his title of vice-premier. And there was more. He bragged to the de Chambras that he was to meet with foreign minister Ribbentrop and Hitler to discuss a formal peace treaty between the two countries since the end of the war. The three powerful men met as scheduled on Hitler's train, America. Hitler told Laval to come back in two days with Pétain, and a peace treaty could be worked out. Laval agreed, and Hitler then went to visit Spanish leader Franco. But, as we have already seen, Hitler got nowhere with his requests that Spain join the war which ruined Germany's plans to march through Spain to take Gibraltar. So when Hitler returned to Montois on October 24th to meet with the two French leaders, his mood was most black. But the German leader controlled himself and spoke to Pétain with great feeling of the British attack on the French naval forces at Melzer Kabir last July. He then asked if France would declare war on Britain. Pétain slowly and carefully, responded that he was here to conclude a peace treaty. This would allow the almost two million French prisoners to be released and to return to their families. And that, yes, he was angry at Britain, but was focused on France's future, which meant keeping the free zone free from control from either Germany or the Allies. Hitler was disappointed, but said nothing. His silence was ominous. To hopefully prove his sincerity to Hitler and to deflate any growing anger from Berlin, Pétain soon thereafter said on French radio, quote, This collaboration must be sincere. It must exclude all idea of aggression. Follow me. Trust in eternal France. Unquote. Then Pétain followed this up with a message to Churchill though through the Portuguese ambassador, so Laval would not know of it, that his collaboration with Germany had no military aspect to it. On December 12th, Abbots, the unofficial ambassador to Vichy France, 
gave to Laval an invitation meant for Pétain. Hitler was asking the marshal to join him in interring the ashes of Napoleon's son, the Duke of Reichstadt, into Napoleon's crypt in the Hospital of Invalids in Paris. At the time, the little eagle, as the French affectionately referred to him, was entombed in Vienna. He had been there since dying in 1832. Hitler would personally bring the ashes by train, and together the two leaders would place the urn in the crypt on the 100th anniversary of Napoleon being returned to France from St. Helena. Clearly, this was a gesture to politically move free France closer towards Germany and further away from Great Britain. Laval called the marshal with the offer, but the elderly leader declined, saying the cold weather, along with his age, would make the journey most uncomfortable. It was already December 13th, and the weather would only get colder. But the Crafty Laval knew this was important for the future of free France. Also, obviously, it was a test of Hitler's. So the vice premier drove the next day, accompanied by his daughter Josie, to Vichy, to put the German request personally to the Marechal. When the two men were alone, Pétain told Laval he would indeed join in with Hitler for the ceremony. Later that day, there was a short cabinet meeting presided over by Laval. Just when it was about to end, Pétain strode in and demanded everyone's resignation. As he was the marshal, and this was not an unprecedented request, all the ministers complied. But Pétain only collected the sheets of paper from Laval and another minister known to support the vice-premier in all things. Laval, quickly getting over his shock, started arguing with Pétain, demanding to know his reasoning. Pétain replied that Laval had not pressed the Germans hard enough to allow him to move the seat of the Vichy government to Versailles, located in the suburbs of Paris. The marshal had never hidden the fact that he hated Vichy, and besides which, his government was responsible for the roads, police, and the political body of free and occupied France. Those duties concerning Paris were hard to administer from Vichy. Of course, I can't help but think that, of all the things that Pétain could be mad at Laval for, not pressing the Germans on this particular item doesn't even crack the top five. Laval denied the accusation, to wit, Pétain stormed out of the room. Laval was about to do the same when he found himself under arrest. He was driven to his chateau, about 15 miles outside of Vichy, where he, his wife, and their daughter were held. To stay ahead of rumors, Pétain reported on French radio that he no longer needed the services of Laval due to reasons of internal policy. He posted a letter to Hitler the next day, December 14th, explaining the removal and arrest of Laval. He also wanted to explain that he would be unable to participate in the return of Napoleon's son. Hitler, who saw his entire diplomatic triumph crumbling before him, flew into a rage. He screamed for Vichy France to be invaded immediately, but then took some offered advice from a very brave soul to send abbots instead. Germany's attention and resources were already focused on the English Channel and elsewhere. Abbott strove to Vichy the next day, had Laval released, who flew to Paris to be nearer the Germans. There he was safe. 
But Abbots was troubled by what he saw in Vichy. When the unofficial German ambassador returned to Paris, he caught up with Charles Bedeau. He wanted to share his thinking with the efficiency expert. The German officer said he knew of Bedeau's plan to head to North Africa to inspect some mines for Pétain. Perhaps while he was there, Bedeau could ask General Maxine Vega if he would be interested in taking control of Vichy in a new French government. Vega, Bedeau knew, who had been ordered to South Africa because he hated the Germans and was unwilling to do anything more for them besides what the armistice called for, would be as shocked as Bedeau was now at the question. At this reaction, Abbott smiled, saying, quote, We would rather have in France, at the head of the government, a freely spoken enemy who we respect, than a collaborator whom we don't know, unquote. Abbots believed he would be helping out Hitler with his Pétain problem and perhaps moving himself up the chain of command in the City of Lights. On December 23, 1940, the occupying forces executed their first French civilian, quote, for act of violence against a member of the German army, unquote. In reality, some German soldiers had gotten into a row with several young Frenchmen. It wasn't anything that hadn't happened already since the takeover of Paris. Still, it showed a change in the climate of the occupation. But to make it up to the city's residence for the execution, the Germans relaxed the curfew from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. The Parisians, freezing along with the 2,000 or so Americans, because the Germans had taken about 90% of the coal France needed to warm itself that winter, were unimpressed, but the growing French resistance appreciated the extra freedom of movement very much. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Um, just so there's no confusion, I released a membership episode at the end of last month, which actually was the first one for this month. I already had it done, so I didn't want to wait, and so I just put it out there. When we come back next month, we're going to look at IBM's relationship with Nazi Germany before and during the first part of the war. There's a lot of serious accusations out there, uh, and the, probably the most um, serious one is that the company helped the Germans organize their information so they could uh, more easily find uh, Jews and gypsies and others that they were persecuting and trying to track down and keep everybody organized so that the trains were always full of prisoners, always ran on time. So we'll take a look at that. And then after that, we're going to look at a um, brilliant plan that someone had in Berlin to counterfeit a lot of money, uh, British pounds and later on U.S. dollars. Um, and they were going to do this right before the war started. But the only people who had the necessary skill for this were some people that they already had in prison. Uh, some of the Jewish prisoners had the skill set for this. So the Nazis, being Nazis, said, hey, work for us or die. And the Jews, of course, said, yes, we will, we will do that. So it's an amazing story how they were able to flood all this counterfeit money into the market. So we'll take a look at that. Then we might swing back around and see what Krupp's up to. Um, I'm not sure yet. So that's just some of the um, some of the stories that are coming. Uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to share with you from this episode that didn't make the cut, but it just really gives you a good glimpse into what's going on in um, in Paris and in Vichy, France during the war. 
um, the women were not able to get hosiery of almost any kind. So what they did was they dyed their legs the color of hosiery. And even on their upper thigh, they drew the line where their garters would be. So that that way they didn't have to worry about it. And of course, we all know that um, a certain number of French women did... um, spend time with German officers. And it's interesting that one American nurse was told by a a German officer that I think after September that the Germans were no longer allowed to dance in France if they went to parties because so many of their, of their brothers were dying over the channel during the Battle of Britain. I thought that was interesting. Also, another American nurse at a party was told by a German officer that Germany would gladly sacrifice 300,000 of their own men if it meant they could conquer Britain. So this war was getting personal and it was getting nasty out between the two. Once Hitler knew that Pétain was not going to go along with him in declaring war against Great Britain, he had no intention of signing a peace treaty with him. So the 1.6 million French prisoners of war in France were starting to be shipped to um, camps in Germany. And in one particular train, two Frenchmen, a whole bunch of guys were loaded up, and two Frenchmen stuck their heads out the window, uh, supposedly to breathe French air for the last time. Uh, A German officer was yelling at them to stick their heads back in. Maybe they didn't understand. German, or maybe they didn't hear him with the noise of the train, but he yelled a couple more times. They didn't stick their head in, and so then he t- took his rifle and he shot them both in the head. Uh, one died immediately, and the other one died um, within the hour. Let's see, what else? Oh, on the 1st of October, 1940, the schools in and around Paris were reopened, and a lot of people were able to see children, very gaunt and white with fear, being uh, shepherded by their parents into the school. So it must have been a, been a very traumatic event for them. I can't possibly imagine focusing on studies, but I guess no matter what, it, to some degree, life uh, does have to go on. Um, also on September 15th, the law was made official in Paris that no Jews, Africans, or Algerians could return to their homes or their apartments. Uh, one, their stuff was probably already stolen by the Germans, and two, there were probably German officers or soldiers already living in their residence. Um, so it, things were starting to change very quickly. And also, I think this was in late September, um, young French boys were seen running or riding bikes down the street, yelling down with the Jews, um, or they were throwing rocks or bricks into um, window shops of of Jewish-owned businesses. And the French police knew better than to do anything about it. They just kind of watched and turned their back. Um, But on one particular episode, a German officer, I guess maybe disgusted by it, I don't know, he grabbed this one boy by the arm and was yelling at him to stop doing that. He was destroying perfectly good glass, you know, lots of money in glass. Um, Supposedly, someone saw an American saw this. The boy reached into his pocket, took out a card, and showed it to the German officer. Uh, no one knows what was written on the card, but the German officer read it, let the boy go, and the boy and his friends um, went on their way. So there was something being organized against the Jews very early on. And, of course, these young boys, uh, not knowing any better, um, were um, eager to help out. 